Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today graduated from Virginia Tech with a doctorate in education administration. He's an author, teacher, and martial artist. Black Belt Magazine called him America's foremost martial arts educator, and Kick Illustrated called him the published authority on American karate. He began teaching karate and self-defense at Radford University back in 1974 and instilled a martial arts minor at Radford that he taught this program until his retirement in 2021. In 1983, he developed IKEA, American Independent Karate Kickboxing Instructors Association, with his teacher, the legendary Joe Lewis, and Bill Superfoalas joined as a co-national director in 1988. He's a Black Belt Hall of Fame member and a 10th degree Black Belt. Please welcome Dr. Jerry Beasley. How are you doing today, sir? I'm terrific. Boy, that was a, quite an introduction there. I didn't know I, <laughs> I try to do a good job on the intros. I try to do my research and stuff, and I've only had a couple times where they're like, yeah, that didn't actually happen. <laughs> So I can't always trust, trust Wikipedia <laughs> kind of what we do on my show with all my guests. I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to know where that first interest came from. You know, where, where was that first spark that kind of kicked off your martial arts journey? Well, as I recall, let's see, it was probably uh, late 1950s. The neighborhood bully was over at my house and he was telling me about how he could use his karate. And I thought, what, what is that? And he was telling me they have to break their the side of their hand and their little finger, and it becomes a callus, and then they can break through anything and they can kill a man with uh, the power of cross. Wow. And being, being a little kid and, you know, being picked on from time to time, I thought, wow, that, that's just great. That was back in the 50s. Of course, we had Superman. So mm -hmm. um, but we were used to uh, things like that. And there was a TV show called Paladin. Uh, yes. Paladin was, uh, was a fast gun hero and mm -hmm. yeah, gun for hire. And I remember one of his shows, there was a guy on it that always wore a glove on his right hand. Mm -hmm. And the guys were picking on him, the bad guys. I mean, I, don't, I can't remember that much about it, but for some reason they had him in a saloon and Paladin was there and, and the guys kind of surrounded him. And so he took off his glove and they kind of laughed at him like, what are you doing? And he broke one of the tables right in half. <laughs> And then they moved back around and then one of them came at him and he broke his arm. And then another one came at him and he broke his neck. And then the other one backed off and um, Paladin said, yes, he's, he's heard of karate before. And so the guy put his glove back on and walked away. And I, I've, I've looked for that particular, sometimes you can find these things on YouTube and yeah. I've, I've looked for that one, but I, I can't find it. But I know it was, it had to have been uh, uh, 1950s um, at that time. So I didn't really get into karate. Let's see. Uh, then the next thing I, I recall was Masoyama oh. on Wild World of Sports, uh, probably early 1960s. He did a demonstration, was breaking bricks and boards and stones and things like that. And then they, they did some um, 
one-step sparring type of things. And it was really fascinating. I ordered his book. What was it called? Uh, what is Karate? Mm-hmm. This would be probably 64, 65, 66, something like that. And um, tried to learn some of the things out of that. I, I, there was another classmate that moved in to our high school area, and he had had some karate training in uh, Arizona. And so he was able to kind of identify a few things. Uh, so, But it, I wasn't really doing anything other than pretending to take a pose. <laughs> In 19, 1968, 1968, we had one of our teachers there at the high school uh, said he had a friend that was going to teach karate and uh, in nearby Radford. I was in Christiansburg. Radford was a couple miles away. So me and a friend decided to um, go take the lessons and we signed up. And of course, we were like 17 at the time and um, uh, we were just really good, very athletic and uh, uh, very coordinated and Moved right to the top of the class, got our green belt. And I'm guessing maybe maybe three, four months, we had Master Su Wong Lee, who was a um, sixth degree from Korea. He came and did the testing, and we uh, we ranked right on up there. And as you might agree, the Korean karate was called Taekwondo. Yep. But it was it was really Shotokan with Japanese, I mean, with Korean terminology. Mm-hmm. And so Tang Sudo, or what we identified as Kong Sudo, K-O-N-G, Kong Sudo, was the art. But again, they called it karate. The, the um, Master Kim called it Taekwondo. So we learned the uh, Chunji forms. Never used them after we learned them, but we used those. And uh, I had to drive all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was uh, four hours down and, and uh, four hours back. And we did that every Sunday for months and months and months. Wow. Finally got black belt in 1971 and uh, 1972 opened to school. Started wow. teaching. Uh, started teaching. I guess I guess we still call it Taekwondo. So um, that's what took place back then in the 70s. The 70s were so great. Yeah. Fantastic years. You probably, uh, yeah, well, you know, remember uh, the Bruce Lee came out in 1973. Uh, um, Enter the Dragon, yep. Yeah, Enter the Dragon, and his movie was extremely popular. At the same time, he died. Uh, so it was the greatest kind of advertising possible for his movie because everyone wanted to find out who was this guy. And I, too, wanted to find out who he was. And so I went to the movie. I had read about Bruce Lee in 1971. I remember reading the article in Black Belt and couldn't make heads or tails of it. But in 1973, went to the um, theater to see Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. I thought, wow, we've really, really lost somebody here. I mean, he, this guy is fantastic. So, well, that was pretty much it for 1973. What else would you like to hear about? Wow. Well, first of all, I want to back up a little bit. When you, when you okay. first started taking the classes, think about yeah. maybe those first one or two classes. What was it about it? I mean, you, you, you had been interested for a while, but once you actually got into it, what was it about it that made you like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to keep going. I think wearing the karate gi and uh, having a belt on meant a whole lot. I mean, looking in the mirror and seeing yourself there, it's almost like wearing a Superman outfit or a Batman outfit. Mm. So um, that had a lot to do with it. The instructor who was American, he was a physical education instructor. So he's really PE oriented, really physical training. We did a lot of calisthenics, a lot of push-ups, a lot of sit-ups for the first hour. And the second hour, we'd get into um, doing every technique at least 50 times, uh, front kicks, round kicks, side kicks, both sides, 50 times. So it was very, 
it was very hard work and um it was just a different attitude it was it was very much a militaristic uh martial art where it was survival of the fittest if you couldn't hack it drop out Mm -hmm. and if you did come the next week everybody kind of applauded applauded you for um for being there we had at the end of each class we sparred we spar individually with each other and then uh they say all right everyone on steve or everyone on jerry and there was probably 15 people in the class and they'd all start attacking me it didn't make any sense when you think about it but you stand there and you try to fight them off and stuff like that so it was um it was very much old style of training we worked on makawara uh we did breaking it was just hardcore karate i mean it, it set it set the stage for everything i did in the future that's so cool. And, and you, you talked about the uh, paladin have gun will travel when I, I yeah. you know, I was before my time, but I actually, I grew up watching that kind of stuff on like Nick at night and everything when I was a kid. So I actually loved that show. But yeah. I said, I don't remember that episode. I'm going to have to try to find it now. And one of my favorite TV theme songs, <laughs> the theme song to have yeah. gun will travel. So that's yeah. really, that's really cool. And I, yeah. And now I'm, I'm on a mission to find that episode now with, with karate in it. You know, I'd love to see it again. I mean, I, I can see it in my eyes. He took off that white glove. This was pre Michael Jackson, but he was wearing a white glove for no apparent reason. Now I can't say it was white. It could have been a leather, probably mm-hmm. was a black leather glove, but he took it off and there was his hand and he kind of held it back and forth. And <laughs> you could see something was coming up and wow. then boom, breaks the table right in half. So those were the good old days uh, of karate. So 1973, Bruce Lee died, and um, that was the same year that I graduated from college, and I graduated with a degree in philosophy. Bruce Lee did not graduate. He, in fact, he was actually in the pre-college. He had to learn enough English, be proficient in English. He took some of the um, some 100-level classes, um, PE classes and um, art classes and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that he ever actually got into uh, philosophy as a, as a major. But anyhow, I uh, received the um, bachelor's degree in philosophy, and I thought, well, I'll go out and get a job. But this was 1973. I believe Jimmy Carter was in the White House. Um, there was no nobody was hiring anywhere. So I decided to go back to um, and and work on a master's degree. Oh, okay. So in the process, 1973 again, Bruce Lee, the explosion in martial arts. Everyone was interested in karate. So I I was a senior about to graduate from Virginia Tech. I put together some some notes and some just a piece of paper that I typed out uh, some things about Taekwondo or karate. And so I called up the uh, the president of nearby Radford University. I was at Virginia Tech. Nine miles away was Radford University. So I called up the president. Of course, I didn't talk to the president, but I talked to the secretary. And I said, I'd like to make an appointment to talk to him about a class. And she said, OK. And so I go probably the uh uh, the next week, I had the appointment go meet with the uh, president of Radford University. Now, you could not do that today, but in <laughs> 1973, it was a small, smaller college, and um, and it was possible to do so. I, I called him up and I said, uh, "Look, uh, uh, this is mostly a, a women's college here, women's teaching college, and um, what you need is self-defense. It's very popular, and and physical education up until." probably 1990s, almost all colleges required three hours of physical education credit. So you take three PE courses like archery, karate, bowling, gymnastics, something along those lines. So you, you would have some physical fitness type of um, instruction. Uh, so I told him it was very popular and he agreed. And he said, but I'm not the person to talk to. Let's walk you over to the vice president of academic affairs. That was uh, Dr. Moore. 
and he introduced me to Dr. Moore. And I remember him saying, listen to this young man. He has a good idea, which is basically, hey, sit this guy up, sit it, do a class. So I talked to Dr. Moore. He was also excited about the idea of having karate and self-defense being taught. I had a, a very minimal credential of a bachelor's degree, but I had a black belt. And I had started the karate club at uh, Rath University in probably January of 1973. And it was immediately successful. Uh, we had 20 or 30 people, which for a small college, if you get 20 or 30 people to show up, you've got a big event. Yeah. So it was popular. And, and by coincidence, Dr. Moore had come over with his son to watch one of the classes. And he really liked the chain of command. Everyone paid attention to the instructor. Yes, sir. No, sir. Stuff like that. And he really liked that. So he immediately phoned physical education and said, I want you to talk to this um, young man about um, having a class. So I went over and talked to him. They said, write it up. So I wrote up a course description. They showed me how to do it following their, their format, their syllabus. And then in the fall of 1974 was the first karate class being offered. It was PE 130 karate. So, and it could have been 150, but it's been a while <laughs> since I taught that. So it was a physical education course. And um, I recall the day it was to be offered, the vice president called me up and said, uh, look, the class fell up in seconds. I mean, literally minutes. Everyone want, came over to fill up, take the class. Would you do a second course, a second session? And I said, of course. So um, I had two classes back to back, started in 1973, uh, 1974 rather. And then I just continued teaching that. I loved teaching at the college. I loved the idea of being a college professor. And by that time, I had decided that's what I wanted to do. And and that's just basically how it came about, uh, wow. uh, the teaching at uh, Radford University. So were you, now is that, were you getting paid for that or was that just giving, going towards credits or how was that working for you when you were teaching? No, I was paid. I was paid nice. at the time uh, $500 a class, oh, wow. which by standards would be several thousand dollars. Yeah, that's not bad. So yeah, it was pretty good money for a college kid. And so when I went back at Virginia Tech, I majored in sociology because uh, there was no master's in philosophy at Virginia Tech. So I majored, majored in sociology. And, and at the master's level, you write papers and do research for every class. So in every class that I had the opportunity, I would research martial arts. I would research uh, Asian martial arts. I would research the combination of sport, sociology of sport. And in fact, my master's thesis was on sociology of sport. I looked at the kind of social psychology of the martial arts instructor at the time, 1974. So I graduated in about 76, I think it was. The idea, if you were Asian in the, around the Bruce Lee era, if you were Asian for the next couple of years, automatically you were respected as a martial arts instructor. Okay. Uh, I remember going into my first class in 1972. The students were out there waiting for me. There were 12 or 15, 15 students or so. And I walked in and I said, um, does anyone know where the locker room is? And they pointed it to me. And so I went into the locker room and I changed into my karate uniform. And I came back out and I said, wow, were you, did you go to school in, in uh, Japan? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's like all of a sudden you're, you're not the same person. You're, yeah. You have powers and abilities. I researched the fact that if you have the calligraphy on your gi or on your belt, that's much more impressive. 
if you can use the um, type of the terminology correctly, the Asian terminology that that really got people much more. Uh, well, going to a Chinese restaurant, if a Chinese person waits on you, you feel a little more comfortable. Like, wow, this is the real deal here. These are this real Chinese restaurant. If you go to Italian, the same thing. So if you go to a karate school at the time, now things have changed, but at the time it was pretty much Asian dominated. Uh, Americans really had low ranks, first and second degree. It was really hard to get anything higher. I know all the Korean instructors had fifth on or higher, so they were all masters, and they were way better than anybody could be in our mind. That's how we were kind of um, brought up to think. Mm -hmm. But then Chuck Norris comes along and some other Americans in movies, and it changed the way people look at karate. So you didn't just have to be Asian to be a uh, karate instructor. You could also be um, non-Asian, could be American and uh, black or white, and still be very authoritative as you uh, teach the martial arts. So that's what I examined at the master's level in sociology. I then went back for the doctorate in 1977 in education, and I discovered that, gee, after coming to philosophy where you learn reasoning, logic and reasoning, you learn to write because every course I took, you had to write extensively. So the people at the doctorate level in education, they really didn't do a lot of writing or a lot of researching. They, they were teachers. So they really weren't competitive. I mean, I was right at the top of the class there with 3.8. And uh, it was just a, it was a terrific experience. I, I had no problem writing the doctoral dissertation. You have to take that before a board of five professors and they, you know, they quiz you on, they cross-examine you really. It's, I mean, at any point they could say no, and then you have to go back and redo the whole thing. So <laughs> managed to get that through. I graduated, I finished in the um, winter semester of um, a winter quarter. It was quarters back then, 1979, but they only had one graduation a year. So officially I graduated in, in the spring of 1980 with the uh, doctor of education in what was called education administration, I was actually being trained to be a high school principal, a, you know, on those lines. I like the idea of um, administration and business, and I really kind of spent a lot of time working on those types of things. Mm -hmm. So that's the educational background. Okay. Okay, martial arts. So 73, I mean, 70, uh, 71, I got a black belt. 1973, I was promoted to second degree black belt in um, ITF style, International Taekwondo Federation style Taekwondo which again was pretty much the karate. It was the karate type of format. I had some friends that were in Shotokan and see, we were doing the same forms, doing the same techniques. Yeah. And historically, as you probably know, the Koreans may or may not have had a, a historic martial art, but it was really when they were drafted into the Japanese military that from 1910 on that they, they learned karate, Japanese karate, Shotokan. And so after the war, after they were set free of Japanese rule, they, the Koreans, of course, didn't want anything to do with Japanese. So they weren't going to use the term karate. So they used the term Tang Sudo or Kong Sudo. And that wasn't good enough because that referred to the same types of karate, the China Han. So they um, went with Taekwondo and uh, the kick punch art. Uh, so I stayed with Taekwondo for the next no, I don't know, almost 10 years getting both, both the fourth degree, third degree, fourth degree, and fifth degree in the ITF style. Okay. Uh, 1980, when I graduated from college, there were no college positions open that I could take. No one was hiring karate instructors. 
So I opened my own karate school, and that's when I developed IKEA, the American Independent Karate Instructors Association. As time went on, we added the um, kickboxing to it. Mm -hmm. In 1977, 1977, I was teaching in a sports camp. I was the karate instructor. There was also a, a Golden Gloves champion boxer there. And we got to talking back and forth. And he said, you'd like to spar with me? I said, oh, okay. So we, we decided to spar. So we, we had on gear, kid gear, boxing gloves and, and foot pads. And so we were moving around and I'd throw around kicking, kick him in the face. And then I'd throw a side kick and hit him in the stomach. And we kept moving around. And I'd fake around and throw a hook kick and a round kick and, you know, take one And I thought, gee, these boxers, no wonder nobody really likes them. <laughs> So I decided, yeah, well, I was in, I had no idea what I was getting into. So I decided, well, kicking is too easy and I'm hitting him pretty good, but I, I mean, I wasn't trying to hurt him. I was just slapping him like, and so um, he had no idea, do I protect low, high, well, what do I do here? So in golden gloves, high quality uh, boxers. So I decided, well, I'm just going to punch him. So I threw a kick and then I moved in for a punch. He stepped to my right and threw a liver punch, a hook. And down I go. Couldn't breathe. I was just completely out of it. And he said, uh, let's do some more. So I didn't let him come back in. I should have kicked him in the legs, but I, I didn't. So after that, I decided, okay, boxing means something. That's, I mean, I've been told in Taekwondo that the hands were terrible. They're, they're not useful. Kicking, kicking. Look at the muscle in the leg and compare that to the arm. And that's why you get all your power. The kicking is the, is the greatest thing so only kick because punching means nothing and boxers are our only sport people. But I found out differently right there on the spot. So I started taking lessons with him uh, with the Virginia Tech Boxing Club and stayed with them for 77, 1980, uh, 81, 82, something like that. So a couple of years. Sometimes you go in to spar and you get a golden gloves and you get beat up. Sometimes you go in, and you get a, a beginner and you get, get to throw in some pretty good techniques. So I was really into boxing at that point, and I could see kind of the, um, the validity of using that either with the gloves or without the gloves. And so in 1980, when I opened my karate school, everyone else was doing, of course, non-contact point karate. Mm -hmm. So I, I let it be known that if you come over to Ikea Karate, we do full contact and we'll spar with anybody that wants to come in. So I had a lot of black belts come by, and my strategy was always... You cover up the first round, let them throw out all their techniques. They get tired. And then the second or third round, you can have your way with them. <laughs> so it, it always worked out. It was open door. We had um, all sorts of karate black belts from different styles. We had Wing Chun. We had uh, Hong Dark, Five Animals, Kung Fu, all sorts of people would come in there and spar. I did have a Wing Chun instructor come in, and um, he didn't want to spar. He just showed me some of the skills, and I said, Gee, that looks really good. I'd like to learn that. So he taught at my school for half a year or so, and I took his lessons. But he was had an attitude that I just didn't really appreciate because he was always telling me boxing wouldn't work. You can't do boxing. So uh, finally, after about six months, I'd invite him several times to spar. But after six months, he decided he would. So he put on the gear, and I immediately threw, threw a combination jab and hook. The hook smacked him really hard. He went right down. I mean, that was in round one. So he probably thought that, hey, that was just lucky. I mean, Wing Chun cannot be beaten. That's what they tell those guys. So we sparred again, and he couldn't stop anything. I just could hit him at will because he, he would take his stance, his Wing Chun stance, and he, he'd wait for me. Well, I always would fake first, indirect, indirect attack. 
So I'd always fake first and then he would go for it. And then he was wide open after that. So it was interesting. He went right in. He threw his gloves down. He said, ah, something's wrong here. So he threw his gloves down. He went into the phone and he called his instructor, uh, a master from the Virginia Beach area. And the master said, put him on. I'll talk to him. And he was telling the master how, gee, master, I failed. I mean, literally talking like that. The, I failed Wing Chun. I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't fight this guy. So the master talked to me, says, ah, so, uh, so you like this car. So I have some people. I'll send them down there. And I said, okay, that's fine. And um, I didn't know much about Wing Chun at the time. So he said, yes, uh, we'll come down there. We've never been beaten, though. We'd like to come down and sample your technique. So that's what he said. So I called up my boxing coach, uh, Maynard, and um, he said, yeah, I'd like to spar with them. Because, you know, boxers, when you say boxing, when you want to box, they like to box. But karate and, and kung fu guys really don't get involved in that, in the testing and the, and the full contact. So they had no idea what they were talking about when they said spar. So, of course, the, uh, the master and his students never showed up. <laughs> and we were ready, but they, they never showed up. Uh, it was about a five-hour trip from Virginia Beach to uh, Blacksburg, so they never showed up. Now, it's interesting. If you want to add something, you just jump right in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I know. That's the, 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 these are great stories. I'm loving it. <laughs> well, let me relate that back to Bruce Lee and okay. Joe Lewis. Okay. Uh, well, it really kind of sets me up for the next thing. 1982, someone had called me and said, hey, and this was in North Carolina. They called me from North Carolina and said, um, Larry Bullard was his name, a uh, big time promoter and fighter in that area at the time. And um, he said that uh, Joe Lewis showed up in my tournament. And I said, really? I mean, Joe Lewis was always my hero. Why? Well, number one, in the old official karate magazines from, say, 1970 or so, he had these humongous knuckles. Did you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. There were pictures of, of Joe Lewis. He was selling protein. And he was a good-looking guy. He was very muscular. But he had these humongous knuckles. And I thought, whoa, that's the real deal there. And every magazine I opened up, he won this tournament and that tournament. And he also fought in a Korea versus USA tournament in um, Washington, or it could have been Oregon. Uh, It was put on by Jerry Pittington, a a real legend in martial arts. And at one point, Joe Lewis fought the champion, the top Korean Taekwondo guy. And uh, again, 1970, so all the Asians were putting down the American fighters and saying they weren't any good. And so Joe Lewis goes out to fight him, and Joe Lewis just beats it up pretty bad. So the coach of the uh, Korean team jumps up and comes out and tries to get Joe and another Taekwondo. So Joe was fighting two or three Taekwondo masters at the same time. And, and uh, Jerry Pennington said he, Joe literally would grab one by the gi and throw him across the uh, floor and then knock down the other guy and then come out the other one. And I said, (laughs) Whoa, so you can be Koreans. They can be beaten. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this is way back in 1970. And, and, you know, I was used to being abused by Korean instructors because they'd take a little stick and they'd hit you and uh, things like that. So I was a fan of Joe Lewis for sure. And so in 1982, when I was called and said, hey, he's going to be um, in this. He's staying at the Raleigh YMCA. He was living at the Raleigh YMCA, Raleigh, North Carolina. And so I called the YMCA and I asked to speak to him. I talked to him and I said, I'd like to do a story. Well, Joe knew how important it was to get into publicity, get back in the magazines. He had been, he pretty much left martial arts right after the um, world championships in 1974. 
and was focusing on making movies and not fighting or doing uh, martial arts. Mm-hmm. So he was, most people, uh, he kind of went unknown there for uh, five to six years. So he knew it was important to get back in the magazine. So he said, come on down. So I went down uh, with the intent of sparring. I knew that Joe had worked with Bruce Lee because I'd read his articles from 1973, Professional Karate Magazine. And that's what I was interested in, mainly because a publisher there in North Carolina had asked me to write a book about Bruce Lee. And I didn't know anything about Bruce Lee other than what I'd seen. So I was invited to different uh, Jeet Kune Do seminars and things like that. And Joe Lewis, I quizzed him on the idea of what did he learn from Bruce Lee? And what he learned from Bruce Lee was it was really sparring. It was what he liked about Bruce was Bruce didn't do the points fighting. Mm-hmm. He put on head gear and hand gear and chest protector and, and they went about full contact fighting. And that was part of the Jeet Kune Do. That was the testing phase of Jeet Kune Do. And that's really what Jeet Kune Do was, is you learn some techniques and then you test them. And if they don't work, you can't make them work. You discard them and then you keep, you absorb what's useful after that sparring match. So everything that you did in Jeet Kune Do in 1967, 68, 69, the idea was you'd learn a, a good front kick, a good side kick, good round kick, jab, cross, hook, and then you spar and you could add something else if you wanted to. If you if you had learned a um, iron palm technique and you wanted to put that in, you'd go right ahead and do it. It's, it doesn't work <laughs> in reality like that. But you could, if you want to do the trapping, the Wing Chun, you go right ahead and put that in. And what you end up with after testing it is what is your Jeet Kune Do. So that's the whole idea on, uh, on Jeet Kune Do. It, there's a lot of misinformation out from that. But that's what Joe had learned and what Joe taught. And um, I'll talk more about it if you remind me in a, in a mm-hmm. minute. So Joe was uh, teaching that. And I was also taking lessons, seminars with Larry Hartzell and Dan Inizanto. They'd come to Charlotte, North Carolina several times a year. I would go down there and take those lessons. But every time I went down there, we always learned Kali, then we'd learn Silat, then we'd have a Wing Chun class. The next seminar might be on Thai boxing. The next seminar might be on grappling of some type. There was never any Jeet Kune Do. There was never even ever any testing or basic fundamentals ever taught at these JKD seminars. Come to find out, Dan had promised Bruce that he wouldn't teach Jeet Kune Do to the masses. So he would come and he would say, here's Kali. Now, Kali has the same type of concept as Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do has long-range fighting, close-in fighting, trapping range, grappling range, and so does Kali. So let's learn Kali. And Kali, fascinating art with the sticks and all. It's it's really interesting, and people get really addicted to the Kali. So there was never a question of, did Bruce do this? Well, no, Bruce didn't practice Kali. He didn't take Kali lessons, and he didn't. That's not what he talked. Oh, but he used sticks and um, and Enter the Dragon. Well, he did, but he used them his way. It had nothing to do with an art, the art of Kali, other than sticks or sticks. So I was learning one concept of Jeet Kune Do from the Inazanta group and a different concept of Jeet Kune Do. I mean, I wouldn't call it a concept. It was the actual Jeet Kune Do that Joe Lewis had learned from Bruce Lee. And Joe Lewis studied with Bruce Lee for about 16 months between 1968 and 1969. He met him in 67 and they exchanged ideas and uh, Bruce showed him what he was doing. But Joe wasn't interested in that. Joe was 200 pounds of solid muscle and Bruce was 130 pounds of solid muscle. And, you know, so Joe felt like, hey, 
there's nothing to learn here. I, this isn't what I would do. I wouldn't go tramping and, and uh, entering to using that. And his kicks were really low and Wing Chun-like at the time, 1967. So Joe had no interest in, uh, in the Jeet Kune Do at the time. Uh, then he found out that Mike Stone had learned some Jeet Kune Do, but Mike didn't learn the trap, wasn't t- doing the trapping, the Wing Chun part. He was doing different ways of entering, different ways to intercept the opponent. So as I mentioned in a current Black Belt Magazine article, the way to intercept is to create, uh, well, the idea is to, as Bruce Lee says, the highest level of interception is to intercept the opponent's intention. Well, what if we create that intention? For example, if I fake a low kick at your groin, I pretty much know your intent is to block that kick. You're not going to stand there and just go, oh, <laughs> I know. So now I've created your intent. So I throw that kick low. I noticed that you go down, you move, you pull back, whatever, to block that kick, to avoid that kick. And typically that opens up a high line, a line to the face. So at that point, I've got an open kick, punch, whatever I want to do up high. I could do the reverse. I could fake at your face and then go right to the, uh, the groin or leg or knee or anything like that. So to intercept the opponent's intention could possibly mean let's create the intention. And if you ever took Joe Lewis seminars, he was always go back to the five ways of attack. He called them angles of attack. But this was the real foundation of Jeet Kune Do. Take your skills, learn some skills, skills that work, the ones that everyone has a front kick. Does your art of Tang Sudo have a front kick? Yes. Okay, so does mine. So does the guy next door in, in Wing Chun. So does the guy next door in Thai boxing or whatever. So my art, my style of Jeet Kune Do can be your style. It can be all styles, but it doesn't have to be bound by any style. You probably know how to do a front kick a certain way. So in order for it to be Tang Sudo, you do your front kick a Tang Sudo way. And if a person is doing it a different way, you can notice, hey, man, that's not Tang Sudo. So what Bruce was hinting at using always as way, having no limitations as a limitation, was simply that every martial art has the concept of a front kick, a round kick. He called it a hook kick because it was like a hook punch. A side kick, everyone uses that, and they are the most functional techniques when it comes to kicking. It's much harder to throw a bending hook kick or a jumping side kick than it is to throw a simple front kick. It's the fastest, most efficient kick. There's what I refer to as a window of opportunity. If you throw a simple jab, there's always going to be that window of opportunity. But if you try to throw a jump spinning hook, hooking uh, five fingers of death, there's not going to be too much opportunity to throw that. Same thing with a jump spinning hook kick. It doesn't come up that often. It's easier to block and it's harder to get it in. So window of opportunity, I call that the woo factor. I wrote an article about that some years ago. The woo factor comes in really, really important there. So in Jeet Kune Do, you want to use techniques that you have the greatest opportunity to use that are going to be the most functional. And you want to constantly think about how can I intercept the opponent's intention by creating that intention and Whatever techniques you use, you have to constantly, constantly test them through full contact sparring. And you have to build your body as a weapon. So you have to constantly train push-ups, sit-ups, weights, whatever, running, whatever it takes to become a better fighter, to be in better shape, to be stronger, faster, more deceptive, to be more accurate. These things are the essentials of Jeet Kune Do. It's not fancy techniques. It's simplicity, all based on this idea that I can intercept the opponent by knowing his intention. I can intercept him. And when I intercept him, 
I can use techniques that I know are going to have the greatest opportunity to work, and I can set the person up with the greatest power, deceptiveness, and it just works better. So that, as opposed to a traditional art like Tang Sudo, where you do it the Tang Sudo way. So when you're performing Tang Sudo, you're trying to make Tang Sudo work as your art. You're not freely expressing yourself as an individual. You're freely expressing yourself as a Tang Sudo black belt, an expert at this art. And so Bruce Lee was arguing that that's not the right approach, in his opinion. Others have been, I mean, it's the right approach for others. So that's the whole idea of uh, of Jeet Kune Do. This is what Joe Lewis said. This was his understanding mm-hmm. of what Jeet Kune Do was all about. Now, during those 16 months, Joe Lewis won 11 straight national titles using Jeet Kune Do. And when I say Jeet Kune Do, I mean intercepting the opponent and using the most functional techniques, which in his case was a sidekick because he was extremely fast, extremely deceptive. And when he hits you with it, you pretty much wanted to give up. I don't want this to happen again. And Joe would purposely throw his sidekick right into the guy's hip. So it wasn't a foul. If he blocked it, it hurt his arm real bad. But it'd go right into the hip, and then that would nullify immobilization. That's one of the five ways of attack, the opponent's ability to come back. So Joe used this theory and also independent motion. He would take his fist, and he would put the right side forward or the left side because you're equally good on both sides. He would take his fist and make a back fist, and then he would throw it straight out. All the other practitioners during the day, 1968, 69, would take their back fist and they'd pull it back toward their chest or their chin, and they'd whip it out a full back fist, and then they pull it all the way back. That's how you did a back fist. Mm-hmm. So Joe would take his back fist pointing at you, his fist pointing at you, punch straight out and hit you, and then he'd whip it back like a back fist. Mm-hmm. So all the referees would see Joe throwing what's called a uh, forward side punch or forfeit strike or a lead hand strike with lead hand hitting. And when as it came back like a back fist, it happens in the blink of an eye. They would call back fist. So Joe was using the Jeet Kune Do in the competition and uh, over that 16 months, won 11 national titles. Bruce um, hurt his back in the summer of uh, 1970, I think it was, 69, 70. Uh, in the 69 or 70, right right in that area. Yeah. And also, he had decided to go to China to make a movie. So 1970, January 1970, he officially closed his Chikuno schools. And there were only three of them, but they were like little clubs. The, the Chinatown school that you probably hear a lot about mm-hmm. had anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12 people on a regular basis. Very small. Same thing with the one in Oakland. Same thing with the one in uh, Seattle. So there were very small clubs. Bruce actually made his money not from these little clubs, but from teaching private lessons. Right. So his students were really private students. Joe Lewis was one of his private students, although he never paid him anything. In Bruce's case, it was, I'm teaching the national champion, the world champion. I'm teaching the world. I, he's my student. And Joe was a very good student for Bruce. He would tell people he was taking it from um, Chuck Norris. Wouldn't, wouldn't admit that he was taking it from Bruce and Mike Stone, of course, didn't really take a lot because he thought he could beat Bruce up, which he possibly probably could. He was very, very aggressive and, and learned the techniques really fast. So he was he was phenomenal. Could he beat Joe Lewis? Joe was a lot bigger and a lot stronger. It's hard to beat. They say like weight doesn't matter, but it does. No. <laughs> they say like strength doesn't matter, but it does. So it, it would be hard to uh, do that. So 
Bruce taught Joe. They would go to uh, tournaments. He would work with them there for a couple hours or after the tournament. And Joe would pick up Bruce. Bruce was a terrible driver, so he never would drive with Bruce. But he would go pick up Bruce and drive him to uh, those various Chuck Norris schools. There was six or eight Chuck Norris schools in the uh, Los Angeles area there that Chuck Norris owned. And he would take them to those different schools and he would spar with everyone, all the champions there. John Natividad, Darnell Garcia. These were all people that won the international championships. Joe sparred with all those guys all the time. Uh, Bruce would come to coaching on that. Jerry Pennington, the legendary fighter, who was also a black belt under Joe Lewis, uh, was telling me that Bruce would come with Joe a lot of times. They, they'd see him out there. And everyone sort of knew of Bruce because he had been in um, Green Hornet. So they sort of knew of Bruce. Jerry also said that um, just about every black belt in California wanted to be in the movies, <laughs> which makes sense. And Bruce was in the um, industry, so they, they wanted to kind of get to know Bruce. So he was very popular. Joe, Mike, and Chuck also wanted to know Bruce because Bruce could get him roles in, in the movies. He, all three of them started with um, uh, Dean Martin in uh, a classic movie back then. Uh, the name escapes me right now, but it was a popular movie back then. And Bruce was working with a lot of movie stars. It was well known. So they all wanted to kind of be friends with uh, Bruce Lee, not necessarily because of his art, but because of his position in the movie industry. But Joe was the one who uh, who went beyond the position in the movie industry and was really into the Jeet Kune Do. Bruce, in 19, um, 1968, he could see the success of the Chuck Norris schools because they'd go to around Bruce and Joe would go to these different Chuck Norris schools. And they all had 50 to 100 students or more, sometimes less. And they were making really good money for Chuck Norris. He was doing really good uh, work then. And um Bruce thought, now this was 1968, roughly, Green Hornet was already over for a couple of years. So he was still getting some residuals, I think, but he was only his mind from private lessons. So he had in his mind, I'll start a Cato or Bruce Lee School of Martial Arts. And so he was training Joe Lewis, the world champion, to be the lead instructor of the Bruce Lee School. So he he would take uh, Joe to these different things and Joe would introduce him to the champions and things. And so Bruce was well known. Joe was well known as the champion. So Bruce was training him to be the chief instructor there because of the connection to Chuck Norris having all the success with the chain of schools. Bruce would like to make some money. So he was thinking and 68, 69 were kind of slow for him in terms of uh, getting roles. Nothing really martial arts he came about, but he got bit parts and different TV shows. So he was he was interested in Joe being the lead instructor. But 1969, I believe that's when Bruce injured his back then of 69. And I uh, decided, number one, he wasn't really going to do martial arts because they told him he'd never kick again. And number two, if he could, he was going to China and get into the movies there that, that he thought that that would be a good opportunity. And by the way, so when Bruce did go to China in 1970, he gets off the plane and there's a crowd of people all ready to see Kato. Unbeknownst to Bruce at the time, Kato, the Green Hornet, was playing in China and it was called the Kato Show. So um, he, he became, he was a star right there. So, of course, he was going back and make movies and, and make some deals there in 71, uh, 72, and, and finally in, in 73. 
So Joe and Bruce did not work out after 1970, uh, although they saw themselves, uh, saw each other from time to time. And Bruce wanted Joe to be in Return of the Dragon, the one that Chuck Norris was in. Right. He wanted Joe, a much bigger, more muscular guy, to be the, uh, the guy that he beat up. At the time, Joe was working for the Tracy organization doing seminars, and they said, number one, Joe, we don't want you to leave for a couple of weeks and not not be here to service our people. And number two, we don't want you to be on film being beaten up by a little Chinese guy. So Joe said, okay, I won't go. Oh, man, what a mistake. What a mistake. That's how that uh, ended up. That's crazy. so where would you like to take it from there? I've, I've talked to all about things. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm curious. I, in my intro, I mentioned that you, you were in, responsible for starting an actual martial arts minor at Radford College. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, because that had to have been the first of its kind in the country. Um, it was. It was the only one. Uh, I think um, a guy out in uh, Los Angeles, um, yeah, a famous judo instructor, again, name slips me. But uh, Gene LaBelle or? No, no, oh, okay. the bell, Japanese guy, Japanese instructor. Okay. Oh, geez, really legendary Black Belt Hall of Famer, well known, but of course I can't think of it right <laughs> offhand. No problem. So, uh, uh, he had, he, I believe he has a minor at a community college out there, all activities. Mine was different in that I had all lecture classes. Uh, so I had a core of four classes. You had an uh, introduction to Asian martial arts, principles of self defense, world martial arts, and, um, theory and practice of martial arts. So we had those four court, all three of them were three hour lecture courses, but they also had activity in them. And uh, so we we actually performed skills as well as learned all the basics, the fundamentals, the history. Everyone liked learning the Japanese in one class, the Korean in another class. Uh, That was always popular. So um, how did I get that? Okay. So um, I had the doctorate in 1980. I go back to the uh, vice president. I said, hey, I've got a doctorate. You know, it'd be great if I could uh, get a full-time teaching position. And again, the economy was such that there just wasn't a lot of openings. So I literally had to wait six years or five years, maybe, until uh, a person in the um, physical education department retired. And then that position came open. So um, the people there in physical education were thinking, well, we need to hire a health educator or we need a, a kinesiologist or something along those lines. They weren't thinking in terms of an activity instructor like me with a doctorate teaching martial arts. So I went to the um, vice president. And so he basically informed the uh, department that if you want the position, we need to have the martial arts. And if you don't want the position, I'll give it to someone else. They decided, okay, we'll take the position. But they were really hesitant about advertising because they thought they'd get all these inquiries from China and Japan and such. As it turns out, there are only a few people that applied for it and um no one was quite in the credential area. I was sixth degree black belt by that time. I had oh, uh, a couple dozen articles published and uh, and a book. Development of American Karate was popular at the time, but even that was not what influenced them. What influenced them was the other guy who uh, turned out was from University of Pennsylvania. So uh, I mean, big guns. Mm-hmm. Tom Seaburn was his name, and really he would have been a great choice. He eventually went to Texas and uh, was a Taekwondo champion and. Um, had a very successful uh, career down there. So he was the other person that was down on the finalist for the job. But when he taught the class, and the class was like 50% of what they evaluated, apparently he lectured. I didn't see it, but 
they told me he lectured to the class and he used a lot of diagrams and things that the professors that came thought, hey, that's great. Boy, that's it's really impressive. But the students thought, don't want this guy. When I came in to teach, I was wearing my uniform with my red belt, red and white belt, 60 black belt. And I took them through the, the poses and things. And I had them do things and they were loving it and laughing and having a great time. And so when the student evaluations came out, uh, I was like right at 5 and he was probably, I have no idea what he was, but he was not anywhere close to the scoring that I had. So they put all that together and um, I managed to uh, be the top choice and I uh, uh, got to con- sign the contract. And once you sign a contract with a college on a tenure track, it's a lifetime job. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible for them to get rid of you. Not that they were going to, but so I taught the class. I loved every day of it. I was there for uh, roughly 40 years, wow. uh, not including the uh, the 10 years that I taught as um, eight years, actually. So that was a total of 48 years, eight years I taught as an adjunct professor. And then uh, the 40 years I taught as a professor in the tenure track position. And when I retired, I had finished 40 years, right at 40 years. And um, I-, I loved every day of it. I loved going in. I loved it was just a dream come true. I always wanted to be a professor. I always wanted to teach uh, karate, martial arts. And I really kind of identified as martial arts because I, I really don't teach a style. The, the end product of Jeet Kune Do, according to Bruce Lee's 1971 article, is to use no way, to become no way. Like I was saying, you have a front kick, I have a front kick, he has a front kick. We're all doing a front kick. I can do it the way you do it. I can do it the way I do it. I can do it the way he does it. I, I'm not bound by anything. So I'm really at the point of being no style, simply less punch, less kick, less grapple, less trap, less use weapons. I don't do it a particular way. I do it the way that works for me. And the way that works for me is after I've tested it over and over again in full contact sparring. That's the mm-hmm. test. That Jeet is scientific street fighting, which means science I come up with a hypothesis, but I have to test it. Right. And if you don't test it, in most martial arts, you never test it. I mean, you, you listen to the master and he says, ah, oh, this technique kill five people. <laughs> and you just go with that. And and people come back and they say, well, my martial art was from uh, this country. And um, this is all we had. We took a stick and we we beat all these people. They had guns and knives and we beat them with a stick. So so it's the best possible technique. Well, uh, have you yourself um fought guys with sticks and knives and guns and and used your stick. So you haven't really tested it. You're just going on what someone else said they tested it. But in Jeet Kune Do, you've got to actually test the techniques so that they become your technique and they're pressure tested, as they call it, or evidence-based learning is what, what we call it in the um, in the research field, evidence-based learning. Uh, so you have to, you test it and you find out this will work. So for all those years, what I tried to teach was, here's what really works. And it, it, if, so if we had a stick fighting class, here are the techniques that really work under pressure, not this routine or that skill that was taught by this person, that person. When I did the um, the grappling type of classes, here are the techniques that always seemed to work. And Joe was really a master of uh, grappling. Most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. In high school, he was a wrestler. He thought, because he was a weightlifter too, his whole concept was, his whole idea was to become a professional wrestler, which was extremely popular, professional wrestling, in the 1960s in North Carolina. Extremely popular. So that's what he wanted to do, was become a professional wrestler. He goes to uh, 
the uh, army base and sees karate and says, whoa, what is this? <laughs> so um, that he ended up trading all of that in to be a karate black belt. And he was a hardcore black belt, but he was also a hardcore boxer. And he was a hardcore grappler. And he'd learned all that you could know directly from Bruce Lee. So he was he was whatever he wanted to be at the time. Yeah, I got to, I got to meet him a couple times. And he was uh, at the yeah. Diamond Nationals in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I got some, somewhere in a book somewhere, I got a picture of me and Joe Lewis way back then. Mm-hmm. So question yeah. then, when, when you retired, did they try to find someone to keep that class going? Uh, no, I don't know whether to take this as an honor or an insult, but yeah. uh, they said, we can't replace you. There's no way we can replace you. Darn. So we're not going to. Do you know about how many students went through your class over those 40 years? Literally thousands. Okay. I mean, for years, I would have three or four class sections of uh, different classes that would have 30 students each. In wow. 1984, I believe it's no, 1983, spring of 83, and the fall of 1983, I was probably in my best shape. I'd had the karate school. I was teaching full-time karate. Uh, well, I say karate, but it was kickboxing. It was full contact. Full contact karate is what we called it back then. Then people started calling it kickboxing. For a lot of people, when you say the word karate, they think Japanese karate, Korean taekwondo. They look at something that they can say, oh, that stuff doesn't work. Well, we never used that. It was it was full con- It was testing. The minute Junri equipment came out in 1973, at the first time I saw it actually in use, I decided that's what I wanted to try out. So they weren't available until probably right at 1974. So we ordered them and. Um, we went out to try to use them, and um, that's when we went from teaching traditional or classical karate, taekwondo, into the non-classical karate, uh, which we said, use what works. So if, if you had a good round kick and I liked it and I could do it, well, use yours. Uh, and if so-and-so had a side kick that was better than my side kick, I would examine it, I'd try it out, I'd test it, and that would be my side kick now. So Pretty much the minute I put that gear on and started hitting and found out that, whoa, what limitations I have because I always do this and I've always been taught to punch from the hip and nothing like that works. And so that in the boxing, it really turned me into a, um, not a uh, karate stylist. However, 1984 karate kid comes out and everyone was doing karate and 1971, everyone was doing Kung Fu fighting. So, you know, it was whatever was popular was the term. So we use the word karate a lot. But and in fact, the big camp that I developed, Karate College, that was 1988. Everything was karate. If I had it to do over, I, I probably would not have called it Karate College because karate to so many people now means a particular way of doing things. And I, I don't do things a particular way. And in fact, our instructors have always been a mix of this art and 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 such as that. We've never taught. It's never been a strict uh, karate, karate is one of the arts. By the way, Joe Lewis, and all the time I worked with Joe Lewis, we never practiced karate. We would put on our geese for pictures and magazine articles or book uh, pictures and mm-hmm. things or videos, but there's no video or picture of us doing what you would call karate. He didn't practice it. I didn't practice it. When he uh, went with Jeet Kune Do in 1967, he closed it. He stopped teaching karate. And he started teaching the Joe Lewis style of self-defense, which was Chikundo. But Joe did not want to call it Chikundo because Bruce wanted him to. And, you know, you'd have to understand the dynamics of two alpha males right. uh, on why that worked. You were going to ask something else. 
I was curious. You, you had mentioned a couple times. You mentioned your 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 books and your writing. I'm just kind of curious how that started. What you know, what kind of how you started writing and talk about your your books you've written. Yeah. So I was a philosophy major, and we wrote all the time. You you never had a multiple choice exam. It didn't oh. exist in philosophy. You always had to argue your point using logic and reason. And so that's what you were graded on. Is this a logical argument? Is it defensible? So that's what I saw. I wrote all the time. And then at the master's level in sociology, my uh, thesis was a couple hundred pages, 216 pages, as I recall. So it was a lot of writing. So I was used to writing in 1980, I think it was, John Corcoran, who um, is often called the dean of martial arts journalists. He was in black belt, professional karate, all sorts of things as the editor. He called me up and asked me to send him something. He, he'd read somewhere where I was a uh, college professor teaching martial arts. And so he asked me to send him something. So I did. I sent him a master's thesis. And he goes through it. He says, oh, I want this and I want this and I want this and I want this. But write it up for a magazine. So I wrote it up and I only knew how to write an academic research type of um, writing. So he would cross all this and cross all that. And he says, your your sentences can last a week. Cut them down. Short little (laughs) thoughts. We're writing to ninth, ninth graders here. So I learned how to write for magazines, and then I just started writing, and I was I probably in my career did 150 articles or columns and things like that. You put on at least 150, not, not more than that. Okay. Books, I wrote my first book in 19, um, probably about 1980, I guess it was, maybe 81, 82, something like that. About the time I was working with Joe Lewis, and um, then book publisher, academic publisher. Again, a tie-in with the college. They would come to me and say, hey, can you produce this? And I would say, sure. So I wrote several books. The biggest book I ever wrote was called Mastering Karate uh, with Human Kinetics, a big, massive uh, college, university level uh, distributor and publisher. And um, that was, gee, that sold a lot of copies, thousands of copies. That was very popular. That was the biggest one. And then I've written several books on Jeet Kune Do. I, I would go and I went to all those Dan and Azanta seminars to research Jeet Kune Do, mm-hmm. but he never really taught Jeet Kune Do. He taught the Jeet, what he called the Jeet Kune Do concept, which was using Kali because it was sort of like Jeet Kune Do and Silat because it was sort of like the grappling part and, and all these things. And you'd put all those together. So that's what the first book and the second book was about. And then at some point I discovered that Jeet Kune Do really wasn't what Bruce was doing, really wasn't what was being taught in the JKD seminars. Uh, the uh, concept, JKD concept seminars. It was similar. It was the same concept. What is the concept? A general idea. It was the same general idea, but it wasn't what Bruce was doing. In 19, um, uh, 1988, 89, I coined the term original Jeet Kune Do for a magazine article. I was writing a, a column at the time too. And I would get so many letters, back then they wrote actual letters, saying that, hey, Bruce didn't do this. He didn't do Kali. He didn't do that. And so I started looking into it, and no, he didn't. So um, I coined the term original Jeet Kune Do, and here's why. Because I don't know if you would remember this, probably not, but in 1986, I'm thinking 85, 86, the Coca-Cola bottling company changed their formula. They were having a lot of competition with Pepsi-Cola, mm-hmm. which was a sweeter concoction than Coca-Cola. New Coke. So they – yeah. <laughs> So they made new Coke, exactly. It was gross. New Coke was, and could compete with Pepsi. But people said, hey, bring back the original taste of Coke. Bingo. That's where I got the original. 
they use the term classic, but you can't really say classic and Jeet Kune Do in the same same sentence right. and have sense. So I didn't use the word classic. There have been people uh, after that that have said um, original or uh, extra crispy. They're talking about an entirely different thing. They're talking about, uh, what is it, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken, yep. <laughs> had nothing to do with it. It all had to do with the, um, the Coke versus New Coke, Coke Classic versus New Coke. And so the reasoning was this. They discovered that by having two brands of the same thing, they actually increased the volume of sales. So if you had two brands of Jeet Kune Do, the Jeet Kune Do concepts plus the original art, you're going to increase the interest and the production, the um, the interest in uh, in Jeet Kune Do, whether they're doing Kali sticks and calling that Jeet Kune Do or they're doing uh, Wing Chun and doing calling that Jeet Kune Do. My research suggests that neither one of those are adequately defining Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do is the testing. It's the full contact fighting because once you do that, you actually come to a different level of understanding when you've really done the techniques. You can write notes all the time. You can be in college and write a lot of notes and know, have the greatest professors tell you the most uh, exciting ways to do things. But then when you get out in the field, you find out what works for you so that's what you can do is it's getting out in the field and it's testing. It's not just collecting notes and theories. It's actually testing. And without the testing, in my opinion, you don't have the you can do. Are each of your books still available? They can still order that book? No, I see them on uh, Amazon all yep. the time at a ridiculous prices. Yeah. Uh, I see the master, uh, Mastering Karate right now. I see them there for like $12. So might, yeah, might, oh, have, well, might have to order that one. That was probably, in my opinion, my best book. Okay. You could take out the word karate and insert mastering martial arts. And I was hired to do mastering karate, so I used my formula, which was not karate, but uh, I used my formula, full contact fighting and testing, Jeet Kune Do kind of stuff, to write the book. And it's got a lot of history of martial arts in it. It was a, they wanted me to do a kata, a series on kata there. And I said, look, I don't, I don't do kata. It's, um, it doesn't teach me, I can't test that. I mean, it's not, I, it's all based on what someone did at some point and what someone said was secret and all this kind of stuff. But um, to me, I want to find out, oh, show me a technique and let me test it. And then I'll tell you, well, yeah, I can use this or I have to change it like that. And all the time, I know that it's up to me, the individual, to get in shape, to get faster, to get stronger, to be, become more deceptive. And if I can do those things, gee, I can make almost anything work. And that's the way Joe Lewis was. He, was, yeah. he could do it, whatever it was, he could do it. I know before we started recording, we, we, we talked a little bit about uh, like MMA and the UFC. Just kind of curious your, your thoughts on that. For a long time, I really liked the, the UFC when it started in 1993, wasn't it? Yep. So it started out my style versus your style. That's mm -hmm. how it, the Gracies wanted it to be, my style versus your style. And, of course, their style always won. So Americans did just like they did karate. They started looking at I mean, they came out as kickboxers or karate or some kind of fighter or, or wrestler. And they said, gee, now, how can I blend this in and how can I learn how to do this also? So they started mixing things together. In 1995 in Wyoming, I'm pretty sure that's where it occurred. I heard Bruce Blacknick, who was um, Olympic wrestler. He said, talking about one of the fighters, he said, he's a real mixed martial artist. He's just as good with his hands as he is with his feet as he is in grappling. He's a real mixed martial artist. Bingo. That's where the term came from. 1995. 
And why do I know these things? Because I mean, <laughs> that's what I taught for years. Yeah. You know, that's what professors do. So, um, so the mixed martial arts. So by the end of the nineties, um, by two thousand, the strikers were starting to do pretty good, and things were mixing up and such. And but then I sort of lost interest in it after that. I couldn't tell you who the champion is at any on any weight uh, or form. Mm-hmm. It. I don't believe that mixed martial arts has helped karate has helped taekwondo has helped traditional martial arts the least little bit in terms of having people come to the studio because really the mixed martial arts put down karate they put down taekwondo kempo all the arts they put all those down and stuff doesn't work because they're testing their skills and the other people aren't there the classical martial artist is classical because they're training in a style or a technique that's been used for 50 years 100 years whatever, has been tried and true in their lineage. That's what they're doing. They're, they're recreating an artistic form, just like uh, a person would take a um, canvas and recreate a Van Gogh or a Michelangelo or something like that. The intent is to recreate. The, the intent isn't to create something new. Mixed martial arts is to create something new. So you have two different, different things uh, going there. So I, I don't believe that that's helped me. And of course, I'm 73, so I don't see myself doing a lot of grappling and um, and such. So I just don't have the interest in it. I just don't have any interest in it, actually. Okay. So then in all your years of martial arts, from the, uh-huh. very, from the very beginning till now, is there one philosophy you've learned that stands out? It's top of your list. You keep coming back to it? Um, sure. It's use what worked. That was the strategy of the early American karate people in the um, in the mid 1960s. That as they were converting from an Asian style to an American style. What is American style? America is the melting pot, taking the best from different styles and creating something that works for you. So that was the philosophy that Chuck Norris would talk about, that Joe Lewis would talk about, that Bruce Lee adapted and and uh, as a, a U.S. citizen. So that has stuck with me all this time. But also what has stuck with me is the appreciation for the classical martial arts. Uh, I love to see an expert do his kata or his kicking taekwondo and or kung fu for that matter, wing chun or whatever. I love to see a real classical artist that's highly trained do his work. So I like that. And I like the idea of the military mindset in that you become a different person. The whole my master's thesis was about you enter karate as a person, you lose your identity and you come out as a black belt. And that that kind of feeling that I cannot be defeated, I will not be defeated, I will find a way to survive, endure and thrive. That attitude in the traditional martial arts that you don't really get in the um, the modern martial arts, the that you could know the uh, mixed martial arts and things like that. It's not really forefront. The character development, that's really not forefront. That mm-hmm. is in traditional martial arts. So I really appreciate the uh, traditional martial arts. It meant a lot to me. It it got me through college. I mean, I, I was um, really unprepared to start at Virginia Tech. It was a um, polytechnic institute, very strong on math and science. And, and I was very weak on math and science at the time. So I started at the bottom of the class, but I was a black belt and black belts are not at the bottom of the class. So I've learned to study and to achieve and went back to master's and doctorate. And at the doctoral level, I was at the top of the class. Nice. So I take that from martial arts training, true classical martial arts training. 
which I never left, with Joe Lewis, never left. Bill Wallace, never left it. Yep. They are modern martial artists, but they never left that traditional martial art. It's always that core. You can tell when a person has that core. They move a certain way. They can do boxing or grappling or whatever, but they have a certain movement to them that you can just see this is a disciplined martial artist. And you don't find that in every style, every, every art, they, they're just different. Yeah. And I agree with what you said about just watching a traditional person do one of those like classic forms. My first ever time attending the diamond nationals, I was 16 years old and we yeah. went, you know, the Saturday night main event. And of course the, you know, that's when sport karate was really becoming big and people are out there doing sure. a lot of like the flips and everything. And I was blown as a 16, I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is so cool. And then a gentleman that you may, maybe you've heard of him, maybe not, but a j- traditional Japanese martial artist, Gabe Naga went up there and just did this traditional form, no music, just perfect form, perfect yell. And just, I had shivers. It was like, wow, that was amazing. And all these other yeah. people are like doing these double flips and stuff. And, and he blew me away more than they did. I mean, the other ones were amazing too, but his form blew me away. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I get that yeah. completely. Yeah. So that's when you say martial arts, I just really, at this point, I have to qualify. Are you talking about classical martial arts or the modern Martial arts, both are good. Yeah. I don't prefer one over the other, but I do really have a strong appreciation for the classical martial artist who is who is dedicated to himself to becoming, developing his body in, a, as an art. So when he performs, it's an art. In self-defense, you don't need to be an art. Right. <laughs> you just need to be uh, tough enough to get the job done and e- economy of motion. And, and you don't, don't do a lot of things that the classical artist would do, but that's, that's a different story. Agreed. All right. I have some fun questions we use to wrap the show up. This first one, it doesn't have to be four. It can, I've had as few as two and as many as eight. So it's, you know, if you want to give three, four, five, six names, who were some names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Well, Joe Lewis, Bill Wallace, Henzo Gracie. Nice. Dan Inazanto. That would be on my, my personal list. Okay. Very cool. I've interviewed one of them. I've interviewed Bill Superfoot Wallace. Now, this one, you can't pick one of your own. Favorite martial arts book? Favorite martial arts book? Um, I probably look at the Tao of Jeet Kune Do more often than other things, but I'm in that kind of mm-hmm. field. The other good books are Bushido mm-hmm. and um, The Karate Dojo by Peter Urban. I love that book. Nice. A lot of my guests have mentioned that one. I need to find a copy of that. I've never read that one. Uh, that's one, again, you can find on the used uh, book market for uh, 4 or $5. Okay. Now, this one you may not have an answer for. We'll see. Uh, do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Did you ever get into gaming at all? No. Okay. <laughs> no worries. That's about, no. It's about 50-50 with my guests. All right. Yeah. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? TV show? Uh, yeah, sure. The Wild Wild West. Nice. Now, yeah, that was, I, this was, what, 1966 or 67. Mm-hmm. I watched West, and boy, he could do his karate there. This was only in season one. After season one, you almost never saw it. Yeah. But it was recognized in season one, and it just was so thrilling. 66 would have been just about the time that I started really looking into karate, reading the books, and um, locating people uh, that, that might know something about it. And, and so um, James West was just... Uh, superhero at the time that's cool and i think you're only my second guest ever out of almost 150 that have ever said that show so that's cool 
I'm sure it has to do with age. I mean, could be. You probably have a lot of guests that remember 1966. I've, I've had a few. I've had guests older than you and younger than you, so it kind of depends. Yeah, but okay. All right. How about a favorite martial arts movie? Uh, favorite martial arts movie, Red Sun. Oh, nice. That one's never been yeah. picked. Good yeah. answer. That was just a great movie. I also liked Circle of Iron. Mm-hmm. Although it wasn't really well done, uh, the meaning of it was really great. The music was really great. Of course, End of the Dragon. Yeah. Karate Kid. Nice. Nothing else really comes to mind, but those would be, if I had to watch them over and over again, I, yeah. that's what I would watch. Do you have a, a guilty pleasure martial arts movie? Like you said, maybe one that's not really well done, but if it's on, you'll watch it. Well, I'll watch any of those, okay. but yeah, Circle of Iron was not well done, Yeah, but but it did have a uh, a good theme to it. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's a American Ninja. <laughs> it's just a, it's a guilty pleasure. If, 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 if I'm flipping around the channels and American Ninja comes on, I'm going to sit and watch the whole thing. <laughs> it, the martial arts in it wasn't that great. It's just a fun movie. <laughs> I think the first martial arts movie I saw was something called Kill or Be Killed. Oh, yeah. It was maybe an English movie, mm-hmm. then Five Fingers of Death, uh, which I wouldn't watch now, but at the time, anything that had a punch or a kick yeah. or an Asian personality, I was that. I would watch that. Nice. For sure. All right. Now, this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie. It can be. It doesn't have to be. Just a favorite movie fight scene. Favorite movie fight scene. Well, I liked um, Hard Times. Okay. With uh, Charles Bronson. It's a great movie. Uh, yeah. I thought those were really realistic and it just was a really good, well done Charles Bronson movie. Light scenes. Well, you know, what comes to mind is Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it was fantastic. I loved that movie. I watch it with my sons who are grown, mm-hmm. but um, I watch it with them at least once a year. We have a great time. It's just a happy little movie and, and um, we know all the parts and things, but Still, it's, it's a fun movie. Um, I can't give anything else right offhand. Well, when you say Napoleon Dynamite, literally, I was talking with someone yesterday about, we were, brought up the, the subject of Master Ken on, on YouTube and stuff and said, I'd love to see Master Ken fight Rex Kwando from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> I think that'd be, that, that would be whoa, such a cool that, movie. <laughs> that would be the two same personalities there. I know. That's, that's why I think Master Ken needs to make a movie, and in the in the final scene, he needs to fight Rex Kwando. I think that would be so cool. Right. He needs to find the real Rex Kwando. You know, the story behind that movie was so fascinating because these were just um, high school kids and things that um, uh, I guess they were in college at the time. Yeah. But a kid had had decided to write a story about his his childhood, putting different themes together. And um, they got the uh, the star heater, I think was his name. Yeah, John Heater. Yep. Yeah. Did it for a dollar. And they just all put it together. And the Rex Kwando guy was, a, was I believe, I'd heard that he was the Taekwondo guy in the town. And he just made up that personality, did a great job of it. All the other, so many of the people were at the actual school. And um, I, I want to go out to that town in, in Idaho. I forget what the name of the town is. Yeah. But I'd like to go out there and see um, see his house. And <laughs> Have you and ever... School watch the original short film that the full movie was based on. It's like a 15 or 18 minute short film. I may have. I okay. at one point really interested in it and spent a couple of hours on YouTube. So I probably saw it. I know it's, it's on YouTube. That's where I first watched it. It's, it's, it's kind of fun to watch you know, you, after seeing the full finished project to see that short film that the, the idea jumped from. So, yeah, that was just a great movie. 
perfect time. So many of these movies and um, and individuals, I mean, I have just hit things at the right time. I came along at just the right time to get into the college teaching environment, just the right time at the right college. They, you know, you had to have the right people in place. It was just the right timing to be able to have a career as a professional martial arts professor. And I know that, oh, gee, I've heard so many guys tell me, hey, that's the job I want. Hey, that's the job I always dream. Well, it was a dream job. I loved every day of it. And now I love every day of retirement. It's just, it's fantastic. That's cool. Well, Jerry, I just got to, first of all, thank you. This has been so much fun. I know you you were, you were one on my list when I first started the show that I was hoping to be able to reach out to someday and, and get on the show. And I'm glad I, we were finally able to connect on, on social media and make this happen. It's been a blast. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely going to be ordering uh, the, the one book you told me to. That I tell all my guests, I used to read a book a week. And ever since I started the podcast, I just don't have time to read anymore, but I still buy books. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah. Brian, I certainly appreciate the call and the invitation. And um, you send me a link to this and I'll, uh, I'll listen to myself at some point. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. If, if my math is, if my math is correct, your episode should be the first one in 2024. So it should be January 4th is when your episode okay. should come out. So just a couple of weeks away, but I, I, I truly, truly appreciate it. And I can't wait till people get to hear this episode. All right. Well, you're a great indoor. I appreciate it. Thanks. And take care. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.